if you're afraid of doing a certain thing, you have you have to do that thing in order to learn that it is okay. Hi, everybody. I'm Cassini McHenry, and welcome to another episode of Fuck Fear. Today, I am so excited about what we're talking about today, which is the study of fear. My guest today is Nicole Keller. She's a fifth-year PhD student at the University of Texas at Austin. She, uh, through Dell Med, she is at the Institute of Neuroscience, and she is studying fear, learning, and memory. Thank you so much for being with us today, Nicole. I really appreciate you and all that you're studying. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yes, absolutely. All right. So I start each episode with asking my guests, what are you afraid of? (laughs) All right. What am I afraid of? Um, I'm afraid of my fam, not having my family with me. Yeah, that's what I would be most afraid of. They're an essential part of my life. And really, I don't know what I'd do without them. So yeah, yeah, that's good that you have a good relationship with family, because lots of people are like, I want to get as far away from my family as I can. (laughs) (laughs) So that's awesome that you that you guys you have a really good relationship. Yeah, my mom is like, we talk every day, even though she's not, she doesn't live in Austin. um, We speak on the phone every single day. Yeah, that's so good. Oh, that's so good. I love it. So you are studying fear, learning, and memory. In your research, tell me a little bit about what specifically you're studying and and not just that, but how it relates to fear. And really, let's back up. How you came to studying fear and what your your motivation was in the topic? Yeah, so um, in my lab, we study how just emotion in general um, interacts with how you learn and remember things. So the emotion that we're talking about today is obviously fear um, and fear really affects and changes how you remember events in your life. Um, the I just find the topic in general fascinating, you know, fear, how, how people learn to live with it or not um, is really interesting to me. And then Kind of ironically, I'm also really fascinated by the opposite uh, feelings of fear, more like uh, reward. And I think the study of both fear and reward is really fascinating and how they oppose each other or work together um, is kind of what I focus on in lab too. Yeah. So talk to me about some of the particular studies that you've done and and what you have learned from those studies. So um, the way that we study fear in my lab is we use this really fundamental time-honored paradigm that's called fear conditioning or Pavlovian conditioning. Um, It is based, it was originated with Pavlov, who's a really, you know, famous uh, person in science. He um, originally, or his original study was, he was ringing a bell and every time he rang the bell, he would give his dogs, um, food. So he eventually learned that, um, his, his dogs were learning that the, the sound of the bell meant food and that eventually only the sound of the bell would make them salivate. So this is like the idea behind, all types of conditioning, um, and then particularly fear conditioning, um, the way that you study that in lab is that you associate a neutral stimulus 
with something that's aversive. Um, examples of that can be an electric shock, which is actually what we use in our lab. So eventually you learn that that neutral stimulus means that you will get an electric shock. So you have a uh, fearful response to something that's neutral. Um, and that is how we study fear conditioning in lab. Um, uh, a big part of the research focuses on that period after you learn about fear. So specifically safety learning. So when you learn to be afraid of something, how do you handle um, not being afraid anymore uh, and learning about safety? More so we study that in the realms of pathology. Um, so for example, in post-traumatic stress disorder, generalized anxiety, phobias, um, you have to learn to not be afraid of things, um, to not, you know, to, to lead a, a normal life. Mm -hmm. So in our lab, we study ways that we can strengthen this safety uh, learning. In technical terms, it's called fear extinction. Um, my specific research is focused on ways to enhance the effectiveness of fear extinction. So talk to me a little bit more about fear extinction. Extinction. You, you mentioned previously, it's like separating the memory, basically, or changing the way you remember something so that later on, the fear is no longer present and the fear is extinct. But, but, my, but I wonder, though, if the fear ever goes away, Does it, is it ever extinct in our brains, even mm -hmm. though you may learn how to remember it differently or re, re, rewrite it in some way? Yeah, that's an important question. And it's kind of funny that we call it fear extinction because you are actually not extinguishing the fear. What is happening when you go through a period of uh, like when you, when you learn about fear and then you learn about safety, you don't um, overwrite the fear. What happens is that you form two separate memories of fear and then safety. And um, because fear is adaptive, um, it is extremely, pretty much an impossible task to delete it or override it. How we can, how we design therapy and the way that we, you know, work around it is that we try to create safe memories that are strong enough and um, effective enough to compare, compete with the, the fear memory. But fear um, no, it, it just doesn't go away. It, it lives in our brains and we have to find ways to effectively fight with it and inhibit it through, you know, a, a, a powerful, safe memory that can sort of shut it down, but it doesn't overwrite it. Yeah. So when we talk about fears, how much of what we are fearful of is trauma induced and how much of what we're fearful of is just something that we create ourselves? So definitely uh, going through a traumatic experience is going to affect many things that you didn't, didn't even realize um, will affect how you think. What happens when just you form a normal traditional association with something that was neutral and something that's aversive and eventually that becomes pathological is that you will form second order associations with things that are conceptually or perceptually similar to that initial 
neutral stimulus that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So it's like a web or like a poison sort of that spreads through your brain and it affects a bunch of different things that you didn't even realize are connected, but somehow they're connected to that first previously neutral stimulus. Um, You know, just if it, to give an example, um, if you're in a car accident and it's a completely traumatic experience for you, maybe um, the sound of like an engine uh, will produce trauma and like trigger you. So any kind of like engine or mechanic sound in the future may cause fear. Um, So that's just an example of how fear is like pretty powerful and how it can spread through your brain and into all of these different connections that we make. Uh, You know, we form associations about things that are similar, about things that are dissimilar. So it may spread within those, uh, you know, webs of similar things. Yeah. You talked about a patient that you um, interacted with who was um, a nurse during 9-11 or after 9-11. So this was actually a um, clinical postdoc that works in my lab, not myself. He um, interacted with a person that worked in a morgue after 9-11 who developed PTSD Um, And then she formed all of these like secondary associations between lights and like the hum of the refrigerator in the morgue. And um, she eventually couldn't even drive or go to the grocery store because all of these different things triggered her. Yeah. Yeah. So that's probably an, an extreme case of fear where it is completely debilitating to your overall psyche and, and, and physically debilitating as well. Yeah. Yeah. So how does it tell me about your your research and how it looks at those kinds of fears like where mm-hmm. where they're trauma induced how do you work with somebody to get to work through that so that they can yeah. function Yeah it's it's really hard especially because as I mentioned it really kind of spreads through your brain kind of like poison Yeah um, the way that you work, the, the, the technical way that you work around this is that you try to form this um, safe association between the stimuli that makes you um, afraid and makes you have this like reaction, you know, heart palpitation, sweating, etc. You present that in a way where you teach the person that it's not going to cause them any harm. Mm-hmm. Um, that is pretty much the the idea behind a type of therapy that's called exposure therapy mm-hmm. um, where you present this this harmful in their mind stimulus but you show them that it's not going to hurt them or cause them any harm um, and this is when they're forming this secondary associ- or secondary memory of safety you you have to form it um, I, I did mention that it's, you know, fear is is strong and safety can't compete with fear effectively sometimes, but you have to start off with forming that safety memory to begin with, even if you, you know, you need something to work with. So the first step when you have, you know, a pathological fear is that you should form a, a memory of safety that you can go to. So basically a memory of safety is something good that's happened kind of in the same context of the fear that's happened? 
Well, that is a, a good question and, and something that I'm particularly interested in. It's not necessarily something good. It's just something not bad. Yeah. But yeah. that something good is an alternative way that we could um, do therapy. And it's what I actually do research on. What if instead of something just not bad, it's something that's rewarding to you? Um, could that be a more effective, safe memory than just something not bad? Yeah. So you've also um, talked about something that's called um, reconsolidation. Talk to talk about that and what that means. So reconsolidation is a very interesting phenomenon, and it um, stems from the idea that we can't. Um, that fear is really strong and that extinction does not, or safety does not erase it. So um, kind of like the study goal or the reason why it was studied in the context of fear was, can, can we actually erase fear? Can we get rid of that memory? Um, and then further, would this be a successful type of therapy? So um, reconsolidation is this phenomenon that exists because memories are, um, you, you can reactivate a memory. Mm -hmm. And while memories that are not reactivated are stable and they live in a stable form in your brain, when you reactivate a memory, it is very weak and you can manipulate it in any way you want. I mean, this is not a conscious decision, but it just okay. happens when you, when you reactivate memories you can either, you know, make them more positive or make them more negative in your brain. You can remember something worse than it actually was. So the idea with reconsolidation is that what if we were to do something to the memory when we reactivate it and it lives in this weak um, state? Can we actually delete it then? So this one famous study, I think from 2001, what they did was that they um, had rats in the lab and then they formed a fearful memory by pairing a tone with a shock repeatedly. Tone, shock, tone, shock. So eventually the tone um, elicited this fearful response in the rats. Mm -hmm. Then they brought the rats back the next day and they reactivated the fear memory by just playing the tone. So at this point, the memory, because it was reactivated, it existed in a, in a weak state. And um, where it lives in the brain is a part of the brain that's called the amygdala. Mm -hmm. So what these scientists did was that they injected protein inhibitors in the amygdala. Uh, and the reason why they injected protein inhibitors is because proteins are needed to form and maintain a memory. So when you inhibit them, you kind of don't have that memory gets erased. Right. So then they tested uh, the memory again after they did this the next day by playing the tone again and the rats weren't afraid. So the conclusion was that they successfully um, erased the fear memory. Hmm. Do you think that's possible in humans? So talking about, I mean, if we were to just maybe a very simple association between a tone and shock and we were to inject protein inhibitors in someone's amygdala, maybe, but definitely I don't think it's something feasible with a pathological fear with, you know, someone that has post-traumatic stress disorder. The reason being it's 
what I mentioned before, it's kind of like spread out through the whole brain. You would have to reactivate every little thing that triggers panic and fear. And that's, that would be an impossible task. Yeah. How much of what we're afraid of has to do with our child childhoods and some of the trauma that people experience from their childhood that they don't deal with that's carried over into adulthood? Well, I think, um, childhood is your brain is extremely plastic when you're a childhood and um a lot of what happens in childhood can permanently affect your life because um it can because it can permanently affect the anatomy of your brain Mm -hmm. um it can change how your brain reacts to stress it can change um how you handle um how you inhibit fear. Normally, uh, you know, just people that are healthy and that have a healthy working brain, their certain parts of the brain are pretty good at inhibiting fear. People that have post-traumatic stress disorder or any type of, you know, pathology related to fear and anxiety, those parts of the brain are um, hypoactive. Mm -hmm. So they cannot inhibit fear effectively. Um, And this can happen in childhood because of something that happened in childhood. Not to say that something that happens in adulthood won't permanently, you know, affect your brain either, but it's just more likely that that will happen when your brain is as plastic as when you're, when you're a kid. Yeah. So you also talked about just how important um, the relationship between the mother and child is in utero and how, much of what the mother may be feeling while she's pregnant, the baby does uh, reciprocate or or receive some of that trauma in a way or that fear in a way. Yeah. Well, this is more, of course, in utero, it's important. um, But also when, you know, the, the mother gives birth in those first few months of the child's life, the state of the mother is really important. And there's a lot of research in, you know, anxiety and depression in women that are, you know, about to have a baby because that will affect um, that child's future life. You know, mothers that are depressed and, um, or have any sort of, you know, mental health disorder, those kids are more likely to respond worse to stress or even develop develop some sort of you know pathology in the future. Um, so it's an extremely important relationship um, of you know how that child is taken care of those first few weeks. Yeah, of their life. Talk a little bit about just the the history of fear, like as we developed as a as a humankind and as a human society. I mean, obviously, fears are manifest differently now than they were in the Mm -hmm. early days of of humankind but can you go back that far and talk about where fear stemmed from and and how it was um how it was used as a uh how it was used in a way that was motivating and also debilitating so fear is completely adaptive for survival um we we need fear to be alive Um, In fact, there is a very interesting story about, um, as I mentioned, the part of the brain that, you know, 
controls fear for the most part um, is the amygdala. And there is this woman um, who has a calcified amygdala. So she doesn't feel fear. And she, there's stories of her that where she has been close to death multiple times just because of her lack of ability to feel fear and fear is you know, essential for survival. You asked about, you know, back in the old times. So you need to know that this place is where there's a tiger, Ooh, you know, by the yeah. rock over there. Um, and you have to form that association. This neutral thing, this rock is, is associated with a bad thing, a tiger that can eat me. So you need, you need those associations. You need to have those associations in your brain to, you know, to stay alive. So it's completely adapt adaptive to form them. The problem is when they become pathological. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you also talked about pathological as opposed to non-pathological. So what's mm -hmm. an example of non-pathological fear? Any type of fear that wouldn't affect with your daily life. Um, any type of fear that doesn't cause you to not do things in the long run or like all of your life, um, things that you can live with essentially mm -hmm. are not, you know, there's, there's levels obviously of debilitating fear, but if you can rationalize and um, overcome them, they are not pathological. Yeah. So obviously the purpose of this podcast is, I mean, is to help people get over the fears that they're facing in four different areas, life, relationships, career, and also parenting. And, and there are a number, a myriad of topics that fall under each of those categories separately. Mm -hmm. But I think overall, the purpose is to help people get over their fears so that they can do the thing, mm -hmm. whatever it is that they need to do, whether it's speaking up or, you know, I don't know, applying for the job, asking for mm -hmm. the raise, saying no, you know, setting boundaries, whatever it is. So as you look at the at, at your research, how do you think your research applies to just overall in general, the topics that we cover here on this podcast? I mean, I guess what I would have to say about that in general is that first, it's not wrong to feel fear. It's like a completely natural and adaptive feeling and we need it. Um, so just being afraid doesn't mean that you shouldn't do something or you shouldn't, you know, go through that process. It, in mm -hmm. fact, it's, it shows that you are doing okay, that your brain is responding in a correct way. Um, for example, if you think of just like stress, for a public speech that you have to give. Stress is what's gonna keep you on your toes. It's, when it, it's what's gonna keep you like active and thinking about it. It's not gonna make you fall asleep and not give your presentation, you know? You need these things to perform well in life. So it's, it's not a bad thing to feel them and it's not something that should, should stop you from doing whatever you want. It, it's just, something that as humans, we all have and we all feel. Um, and it's something I've told myself, I think, in the PhD as well. <laughs> kind of like the fact that I'm afraid or anxious right now before I give this talk is not related to my performance. It is just 
a natural feeling that happens because I'm human and because every single human that has lived on this earth has felt, you know, it's an adaptive feeling. It's, it's not weird to feel it and it shouldn't make, and it shouldn't be associated with negative thoughts. Um, the fact that you're anxious or afraid does not equate like bad job. Right. Right. How much of what you're doing right now is, is, is personally motivated? Um, well, the, the reason why I went into neuroscience in the first place was a very personal motivation. Um, my grandpa has Parkinson's disease and in general, I was just very, like I was questioning a lot of things and why the brain is the way that it is. Mm -hmm. Um, and I wanted to help people. That's, that was the main, main reason. I wanted to do something that creates an impact in society. Yeah. Um, that's yeah. why I, I switched careers actually. Um, I was in liberal arts and I oh, really wow. didn't know what to study. Um, all my life, like, um, high school and all of that. I was very interested in languages and writing and, actually journalism too. <laughs> really? Oh, wow. Yeah. And I never did anything in science, actually, never really focused on that. And then I just had a moment where I was like, oh my God, I want to study neuroscience. So I had to take so many classes in my undergrad to be cut up. I was one year behind yeah. to still graduate on time. And I was very um, motivated to, to switch and to go into this career. I, I really am fascinated by it. Yeah. What do you think is the most fascinating thing about, about just the study of fear? Hmm, I think one of the, the most fascinating things that I found, I mean, this may not be <laughs> that good for your viewers or, or whoever is hearing this, but one of the most interesting things that I found about fear is that it's so, it just really permanently kind of lives in your brain, whether it be pathological or not. Fear is such a strong memory that we need for survival that the brain really prioritizes it and it does not want to get rid of it. We can have, you know, that safety memory and we can go through experiences where, you know, you learn that you're not afraid, but that doesn't mean that the fear is not there anymore. It can mm -hmm. resurface, it can come back. But as I mentioned, that is completely, um, you know, normal and important for survival. There's a reason why fear is that important in our brain. It's because it allows us to be alive. Um, yeah. You mentioned too how powerful it is. Yeah, um, it's that's I think one of the most interesting things. It's just, um, how, how powerful and how much the brain uh, really prioritizes it and doesn't want to get rid of it. Yeah. So do you think just in, in what you've learned about it and, you know, and talking about creating safety memories and fear extinct, extinct, extinction, I can't get my words out today. <laughs> <laughs> it's the end of a, a long day and a long week. Yeah. It's um, a Friday. But do, yes. Oh my gosh. And we're talking about something very, like very deep and, 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 and psychological. Um, do you think with those things that, I mean, obviously our brain doesn't want to get rid of it, but mm -hmm. do you think it's easier for certain types of personalities to deal with it in a way or be more resilient 
And for those who aren't as strong, um, who aren't as resilient, how does it affect them differently? Yeah, there is there is definitely uh, ways that personality affects how fear is, you know, handled in the brain. One example I can give you is like intolerance for an uncertainty. Um, you know, if you're that kind of person, it might be hard to learn about safety because it's just such an ambiguous, you just learned that something means that something is associated with fear. And now you're learning that that same thing is not associated with fear. That's very ambiguous. Mm -hmm. It really doesn't make sense. Right. What? I just learned that it's like bad. It's going to, you know, harm me. Why would I want, it doesn't make sense that it's safe. I'd rather be safe than, or yeah, I'd rather be safe than sorry. But in, in the other way, I'd rather think it wants to kill me than just be, you know, okay. And think that, that tiger won't be by that rock anymore. Yeah. The, the, um, the outcome there is, is really bad. If the tiger is there, you may die. So when people, when certain personalities don't really tolerate change that much, that can affect them. For example, there's certain, certainly people that are more resilient than others. Two people can go through the exact same trauma and one can go on to develop PTSD and the other one won't. And, and I, I can't really, I mean, if I had the answer, <laughs> I think I'd graduate by now, but <laughs> um, there really is not a, a, a clear answer as to why someone goes into developing, you know, pathological fear and the yeah. other person doesn't. Um, it can be many things, genetics, their childhood, their personality, um, even what how they handle it or what they do immediately after the trauma. Yeah. I actually read a re recent study that was interesting uh, about these, I think it was, I'm not really sure, but it was a group of people that went through a traumatic event because there was a fire in, um, I don't know, wherever they were, but it was a social event. So some of them were drinking and in this study, they found that the people that were a little bit, you know, not completely drunk, but just had been drinking a little bit, uh, they were more resilient and they didn't develop pathological fear. Very interesting. Interesting. Yeah. They mentioned like they felt that they were, they had a higher sense of control just because they had been drinking to a point where they weren't inebriated, but they just felt more relaxed and more in control. Oh my gosh. Um, that, so that's it's interesting. False, Even right. Like, <laughs> yeah. It's like a false feat. It's like, it's like liquid courage, right? Exactly. Like, like, exactly. like in the true sense of the term. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. yeah. So even, even the state of your brain, when you experience that trauma can, can change, um, whether you're resilient or not. Yeah. I think what's really interesting is when you're a child, how fearless you are and how your parents really have to save you to have to help you save your own life and, and to keep you from killing yourself. And as you get older, you develop more fears. For instance, like climbing to the very top of a tree and not being afraid that you're going to fall when you're five, as opposed to doing the same thing when you're 12 or 13, even though in that time frame from five to 13, you never fell out of the tree. You just are more afraid to do it. 
why does that happen? Well, I think that the reason for that is, as I've been talking a lot about these associations that you're forming between, you know, something that was previously neutral um, and now something bad happens. So now it's not a neutral thing. Yeah. You learn what can happen when you fall from a tall tree. As you get older, you see it in TV, your parents will tell you about it. You just don't know. You haven't formed an association in your brain that tree means fall means broken bones. Uh-huh. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's that's an important thing that you you just learn all of these associations as you live life that you really didn't have and you hadn't made them when you're really young. Yeah. I wonder, too, like in in situations where people are in toxic relationships and obviously the person who is inflicting the the toxicity uses fear to control the other person. And there's really like there's the only association that Pete that adults have with that toxicity is just the person's words and and their um, I guess just their psychological abuse. So in, in that sense, when it comes to fear, like you don't have like, like, you know, falling out of a tree and breaking bones, you just have like how the brain reacts to that kind of um, interaction and that toxic toxicity. How do you like, how do you think about fear in that, in that way where there's nothing tangible, you know, there's like not a tangible object, um, There, it's just like, a, it's just a toxic environment. So how, how do you look at fear in that situation? Um, yeah, that, that's an interesting question. And it, fear doesn't always have to be tangible. Yeah. Um, the examples that I've given are, are tangible just because that's how we study it in lab and the easiest way to, you know, see how the brain reacts to fear, but certainly it doesn't have to be something that is, is a tangible thing. Um, It just exists in many ways. It can be a feeling, you know, Um, something that can re-trigger fear can just be feeling a certain way. Um, And that is also an interesting debate in the field is, is it the feeling that causes you fear or is it fear that causes the feeling? Um, because you can have like heart palpitations and sweaty palms and then think, oh, I must be afraid, you know, like I must, something's going on. Sure. Um, so it, it could be just it, th- these things call, cause a reaction in our body when you're in, like in a toxic relationship, when someone is mistreating you, your body responds to it regardless of it being you know, tangible or not. Right. Right. So what do you want to do with your, with your research eventually? Cause this is it's uh, fascinating to talk about this and it's yeah. so to really to get to the depth of understanding of not just where fear comes from, but it, what's fascinating to me about the whole thing is how it manifests itself in people and and how it keeps people from doing things even though it's like it's not anything that we can like again it's not anything tangible but it's such a strong force in our lives in so many different ways so it's so fascinating to see to for me to see how people react to it and how they allow Mm -hmm. it to 
um, um, to, to control them in a way. So anyway. Something that I would say about related to that is I've been talking about, you know, safety and that you have to go through safety. If you're afraid of doing a certain thing, you have, you have to do that thing in order to learn that it is okay. Yeah. You know? So there's no way that you will form a safe association in your brain if you don't go through that thing. If, you know, you, I'm sure you have many examples of how fear has stopped you or prevented you from doing certain things. Or, you know, um, if you are in a toxic relationship and you're afraid to leave that person, you won't form that safe association until you leave that person and you realize that it's all okay. Yeah. So the only way through to form it is to experience it again, experience that, you know, thing that is making you afraid again. That is actually a problem in therapy. People don't want to re-experience things and they stop going to therapy. Right. Like, I don't want to think about what made me afraid. Why would I go to therapy in the first place then? Right. Cause it's too painful. Mm-hmm. And I, and I've talked to a life coach who, who says, and she's been on a previous episode. She says people don't want to feel. And that's the problem is that if it is something like you said, associated with fear, people just don't want to have that feeling again. And so they just avoid it all the way around and they never get through that fear. Exactly. The, the feeling is too painful to experience again. Yeah. So, so to overcome it and to, and to form this other association in your brain of, you know, the opposing feeling of fear, you there, the only way that you can do it is, is if you experience whatever is making you afraid in a context that is not, that is, that is safe, that you realize that you will be okay. Right. And that in itself requires courage and bravery. So, yeah, which is, Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. That's a hard from, thing. From, from a neuroscience standpoint, what I can tell you is that you need, you need it. There's no way that you will overcome it. If you don't go through that other, if you don't form that other association, Yeah, as I mentioned, fear, fear is powerful. So you need to create something that will compete with it in your brain. You need to form that new safe association. It, what it does literally that it, 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 inhibits the fear. That's what safety does. It inhibits the output of fear. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of like getting on the plane if you're afraid to fly. Exactly. That is what exposure therapy is. It's reliving those things that make you afraid and in an environment that won't cause, you know, the plane crash or whatever you're afraid of. Yeah. So as we end, what, what it, I always ask my experts for three pieces of advice to help people get over, you know, usually we talk about very specific fears on each of the episodes, but obviously we're talking about the study of it. So in general, what would be the three things you would want people to know about how to deal with their fears? The first one I would say is it's completely adaptive to feel it in the first place. So there's nothing wrong with feeling fear. It's essential for survival. So that's the first one. The second one is, I guess what I just mentioned, you have to go through feeling it again and doing whatever you're afraid of 
to form a secondary association in your brain of safety. You can't form that safety if you don't overcome or not overcome it, but put yourself in a position where you are doing what you're afraid of mm-hmm. and when you, where you will realize that it's okay. Nothing bad will happen to you. Um, and then the third one, it doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. And even if, if you're afraid while doing it, and then even if something bad happens after it, that, that doesn't define, you know, that one moment that something bad happened in that one instance, does not mean that you're done and you didn't form that safety association and you shouldn't try again. You know, um, I guess this is more personal, but just life experiences when, when you learn to deal with something, it, how, how that situation unfolds also depends entirely on you and your feelings throughout all of them. Um, so how you interpret a situation kind of like, will I let this crush me or will I just learn from it? And like, just because you didn't have, you know, you, you, you were trying to overcome your fear, you put yourself out there and it sucked and it went badly. Try again. Is yeah. Yeah. Don't let it stop you. Yeah. We have been talking today with Nicole Keller. She is a PhD student studying the of uh, studying fear and fear learning and memory at Dell Medical School in the Institute of Neuroscience at the University of Texas at Austin. This has been so fantastic. I can talk to you for another hour. You are so intelligent and so smart. And um, Thank you. yeah, this has been so fantastic. So I hope it has been just as beneficial to all those listening today as it has been to me. Thank you so much, Nicole. You were so great. And I I wish you you well. And yes, absolutely. I'd love to have you again as you get further into your studies. Thank you so much for listening today. You have been tuned in to another episode of Fuck Fear. We'll see you next time. Mm